when we started this journey, we didn't come to the table trying to find a philosophy or a theory or an idea um, and talk about this idea, but we were interested in having conversations with real people and learning um, about the things that um, undergirded or motivated them. And we thought we would find a lot of different principles at play that informed the way that business people live their lives. But what we actually have found is that there's one foundational thought that really informs everybody's behavior, and that is, how do they see people? When we see people as valuable, the decisions we make come from a different angle, and they have different results. And with that being the case, we thought that maybe it would be great to have a conversation clearly and directly about how we see people for a lot of reasons. Number one, it is the key point that differentiates a business that is fine and dandy from a business that seems to be really interesting. Number two, everything happening around us today is dealing with perceptions of others. How do we as a culture see other people that are the same as us or different from us politically racially socially economically so we thought we would pull a couple of previous guests into a conversation to help us process some of the ideas that we had behind this so we asked chris cox and rachel selby to sit down with us and just have an open conversation Uh, that conversation led to this mini series on how we see people and um enjoy (laughs) So 2020 has been a really interesting year. And I don't know that it's that it's necessarily been more interesting than any other year, but it kind of feels like it. And there's this confluence of a lot of different events. There's the global pandemic, which is the first time that's happened in my lifetime. Um, there are escalating race relations, and that's led to protests in the streets and, and uh, a real awareness from, I think, people that until this year would have never spoken out about those things that this actually is something that we have to speak on and have some real conversations about. And, uh, and then you also have an election that's coming up and, uh, it's a super contentious election. And so there's all these challenges that are sort of converging together and that can be a pretty challenging thing to navigate. And this podcast is about, making a difference, doing things that will matter in a hundred years. And uh, what we've become aware of over the past several months, uh, just through conversations and stuff like that, is that there are a lot of people that want to make a difference, but they don't really know how to interact with these things or where to start. And so we, we wanted to do a podcast with the two of you because you have some we think some really interesting insight on how we can move forward, some really um, hands-on 
experience with some of these things um, and also just some wisdom. And uh, hopefully we can we can come to a place where we're not saying all the things that everyone is already hearing and and maybe provide a framework to to approach these things differently. And um, so that's that's kind of what this this conversation is about. So what would you say is a good starting place? Let's just start there. <laughs> the starting place. What is a good starting place for interacting with these things that are happening in 2020 in a meaningful way? Well, I would say that I had a lot of opinions. I still do on a lot of issues. And about two months ago, you know, just really thinking through all these events and all these issues and just really burdened about it and trying to listen to all the sides and hear all of the, the clamor. And God really reminded me of the verse, um, do not sit in the seat of scoffers. It's very loud, clear warning. And it really caused me pause um, personally. And I started looking that up and researching what's a scoffer. What was the verse? Re re you know, what was it talking about? And as a believer, I take that seriously and I want to follow the word and I want to make sure I'm applying it in my life. And it really, from what I understand, is somebody who has made up their mind and sat down. And as I observe the news wow. and social media, I see that everywhere. Um, it has scared me when I've been that way. It has scared um or I guess it's, it's really concerned me as I've looked up to certain leaders who I would say that I respect or would follow and see that some of them have done this. Um, and so really I've stepped back from all of it. Not that I'm not engaged, not that I'm not reading and talking and trying to understand, but I want to make sure that as I work to be a part of this world and a true follower, that I'm not sitting down and making up my mind. So that, that's really where I am. And it's a weird space. It's not a comfortable space at all. I'm questioning everything, everyone, even my own, um, what I believe and why I believe it. And I would say it's just, it's opening up all kinds of things that I'm seeing and hearing that maybe people have been saying it and I never heard it. That's really good. That's a, that's an impactful from the side that I think, um, that for me, when you said we all want to make a difference, um, my initial response was to say, if I want to make a difference, it's going to demand that I become different. Uh, obviously, being who I was and, and maybe am and being who I've been within the context of even my community hasn't led to the change that I'm longing for right now. It hasn't led to the equality. It hasn't led to the, the healing. So whatever it has been, hasn't been enough. Like that's just kind of matter of fact, like whatever I have been, hasn't been enough. So there must be something else that like I have to search for. So before I can make a difference, I have to become different. And for me, that's been like listening on both sides. Um, one of my biggest landings that I always challenge myself on is um can everyone belong even before they believe and that's not only the people that i believe like agree with me and my belief systems or now or are on a journey toward belief but could the people who vehemently disagree with my perspectives on 
politics, masks, equality, all of those things with someone who really disagrees with me. Can I see that person belonging in community as much as I do before they have to believe, or we have to be in agreement on beliefs. And I think starting there is, is really important for me is when I don't want people to belong, I have to do the work on myself to be open for people to be allowed to belong so that then we can talk about our beliefs. What are the warning signs that, that you have identified in yourself? And this question for kind of both of you, um, like what is a warning sign that says, I don't want this person to belong? You know, knowledge isn't education is empowering. So when you learn something new and you learn something that changes your perspective, all of a sudden you want everybody else to know it too. At least maybe that's not just me, but you're not, you can be annoyed with those that don't know it yet, or you can be mad at people that they don't even want to try to hear it or learn it. So those types of personalities or people that resist even learning something new, because they don't want to change their mind. They don't want to consider having to change their mind. Um, it's hard for me because I feel like we're at an impasse. Um, and, and I can see it almost it, received in a hateful way sometimes, or it it comes across as hateful behavior. And so that's really hard for me to try to be a bridge there personally. Yeah, that's good. I I would agree with the theme of like just learning. Um, I I find in myself that um, the enemy that rises up inside of me when I, when it's time to learn is either arrogance or ignorance. Um, Either I don't know anything about it. So I just want to move on because I don't ever want to be part of something that I'm ignorant to. And if I am ignorant to something that I'm just like, ah, I can't be a big deal because I don't have margin to keep learning all of these things or whatever. Um, or arrogance, um, which I think is actually just to the same definition that Rachel was using a scoffer earlier is like arrogance is sitting in it and just be like, I'm, I've already landed on my belief system. I'm here. I'm just going to sit in it and then and look at it. But those two are the, those two things are the enemy of, of learning. And I find in myself, when I come across as arrogant, um, with an idea or a concept, that means I've ceased to be a learner and I need to put myself in check. Um, if I walk into a room and think, I do not know anything about this, so I don't have anything to say, I'll let the more informed people sort that out, then I've chosen to be ignorant and I've put myself as a victim in that scenario of like, I, I can't engage in the conversation and I can't learn. Um, and then the and then the simple check for me is anytime I hear myself use the words they or them, then I know that uh, I've, I've gone out of bounds for myself. If, if I hear, well, you know how they are or when they choose to do this, then I'm like, oh, I got to go. I need to go spend some time getting centered up because if everyone's supposed to belong, there is no they, and I just said they. So that means obviously I don't believe they belong. And these are questions I asked myself too, when we were supposed to surround ourselves with people that encourage us and spur us on, but we're supposed to be inclusive also. And at what point is there a point where you shouldn't have somebody in your circle? Um, I don't know that that bothers me. I don't like that thought because that feels judgmental. Um, but I think there's a real danger out there right now with thought, um, and influence and just a spirit of division. So I, I guess I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Anyone's thoughts? I love that question. I've wrestled with that so much in order for someone to belong. Does that mean in every 
environment in every space with me? Or are there certain spaces that I need to be able to process my belief system that may be broken? Or I need to process my understanding to make sure that I'm right in this conversation but that my, not only is my concept right, but that my posture is right. And I can't do that with everyone in the room. So belonging doesn't mean that everyone's in the same space. Um, I view it as relational belonging, right? I can have friends, family members um, all around. And if someone said, do they belong? I would say yes. But if someone said who belongs the most, I would say Sarah. Like she, she gets a space, my wife, she gets a space that no one else gets. Like she gets a belonging that no one else gets and a benefit of the doubt that she gives me or that I give her or like, so there's, I think there's layers to it. Um, and it could, and it could even just be the question of if they, let's put the they back in, if they came to us, would they ever feel like they could belong? Not do they belong, but would they feel like they could belong with us? And that's, that's probably where I spend the time working is, to, to focus on that of, and no, it wouldn't, because it wouldn't feel fair. And we've probably all been in those circles where nine of us are in the same tribe on the, on a belief system. And one person comes in and starts to just kind of rattle the cages a little bit and, and stir things up. And all nine just pounce on of like, no, but this, but this, because we're trained, right? Like we, we protect the tribe and it's like, Oh, uh, this wasn't a safe space for them. Did we invite someone into the wrong space? Do we need that separate space? Or did we need their voice here to see what it looked like to be us when someone disagreed with us? Because that wasn't too pretty what just happened there. I'm sure in your arena, like coming through this political process, that had to be a really difficult journey of knowing how everyone could have hope that they could belong while at the, without even surrendering the tenets of what you were standing on in that journey too. It's like in order for this person to be, or this group to be welcomed, do I have to change my belief system or what I've said? Or like, how do I, how do I embrace everyone without changing everything about our value system or what we stand for? Or, and there were probably some corners that could have been cut as well that you could have said certain things so that people felt like they belong but I'm sure that was internally difficult too of going, no, I, I have to stand with what I know is true in that. I bet that was, that had to be emotionally overwhelming. Yeah. There were certain times I can clearly remember, um, whether it was in giving a certain talk on something or a particular audience and being advised, Oh, don't, don't talk about this. You know, don't go into this subject. Um, and that, that is difficult because, you can kind of read a room pretty quickly in a mood and know what, I mean, what needs to be said, whether you were brave enough to say it or not, <laughs> uh, or knowing that if you said what you really believed and you really believed was right. And you said it very clearly, you would lose some votes because you weren't getting everyone, you know? So that's a constant, um, thing people go through. So the more I did it, the more I got comfortable with just saying what needed to be said, what I believed. That, that's really important too, right? Like that. So recently I've been intrigued by um, public personalities who have worked out their belief system on a public platform instead of in private before they went out on their public platform. And you can just see them working it out, right? A belief system around 
uh, race, religion, identity, history, um, systemic aspects. And I watch it happen on a public platform. And there've been a couple of times where I've thought you, there was no one in the room, um, for you to like say that and see their response before you walked out on stage. And then you said that and you saw their response and you don't love it. And now you're trying to walk it back because you weren't sure how it felt. But Rachel, as you were just talking, I, sometimes I take for granted that like you and I, we get to practice this a lot because we've had some public platforms and we've been able to talk in front of crowds and people ask our opinions. I I am really empathetic to the, um, the local just community citizen who is trying to sort all of this belief system out without having this many opportunities to practice it. And then are being blasted from a perspective on a social media platform, or they say something wrong at a family reunion or like, you know, like what you just said of like, the more that you practice it, the more comfortable you felt in sharing your belief system and just saying what was right. I don't know that people get a lot of opportunity to practice right now because of cancel culture or fear or anything else. And I think that's something that I really empathize with is just that safety to practice uh, around my, my peers. And just, it's a safe place to say whatever, because I'm not going to cancel you. If you say whatever, I'm just here to listen and talk about it. So I just want to hit the pause button for just a second and talk about this idea that Chris has just brought forward. And then we'll resume the interview. Uh, the idea is that all of us need a space where we belong and we know we belong and that if we practice like figuring out where we stand on some of these things and figuring out how to talk about them intelligently, empathetically, and so on, even if we make some missteps and say some stupid things, our place in the community is not going to be questioned. Now, the reason that this is so important and that I, I feel like we need to bring it to the forefront is that a lot of our conversation right now is happening digitally on social media, Facebook. And that is a different kind of platform. Any thoughts on what kind of platform that might be, David? How, how would we classify that? Well, Facebook is kind of like the city square. It is a public forum where people can have open conversation in a particular context, which is in public, because everybody can read what you put there. <laughs> um, I think sometimes we get confused in that process because there are certain conversations that happen in a house, and those aren't usually the same as the ones that happen outside in the public, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so... We have a lot of things happening in a very complex society today. I mean, if you think back to, like, I don't know, first century, you have Athens where the philosophers would get together and throw out the newest, greatest ideas for public consumption and get feedback on those. And it maybe was kind of processing uh, to some extent, but it was, you know, a place where people interacted publicly and everybody understood the context. With everything being digital, oftentimes we forget that what we say in those places are publicly stated. And so we're having miscues in our understanding of context. And sometimes these conversations are unhealthy because they're intended for a different space. When we interviewed Matt Klimmer, one of the things that really stood out to me was when you asked him how connected he was digitally, he talked about being present there. And his reasoning was that when he is online, 
he imagines that he is in a room right. with other people. Being on a platform on social media is like being in a room. And whatever you do or say, it's as if you were doing that and saying that live in person in the room. Even if it was a small get-together at your house. A small cocktail party, a small Bible study, whatever. A small group getting together. You know in those settings, whatever you say, however you engage, knowing that everyone in the room is like listening to you, you probably think about who your your state of being in that moment. But for some reason, when people are online, they don't bring that same uh, vibe with them and, and are just sharing and saying whatever instead of realizing, nope, you're in just a room of people. And so really who you are online should be the same who you are offline. And who you are online, you may not think people are listening or watching like they would if you were in their presence, but they are, and it matters. And I think that would go a pretty long way in helping us engage more empathetically, compassionately, and thoughtfully in public forums. Chris, some of the things that you're talking about right there bring to mind the the idea of like an individual response to these issues that are surrounding us, right? And how oftentimes we think that I, as an individual, am the person who has to make a decision on how this should be dealt with, when actually what you've just described is more of a collective process where I, as an individual, am a voice, but there's a safe place where I can have conversation with other people to help me process through the challenges that are in our culture. Really, these are common like collective issues. And I, I would be curious to hear what you think about our responsibility in our homes, maybe, uh, especially with you and Rachel having connections with like children in, in some challenging areas um, and situations. How important do you think it is for us in our families to take responsibility to create a space where we can engage in critical conversation about these very relevant cultural issues that are in front of everybody and whether or not that could be a cultural shift that we make on purpose when we're aware of that to help our children engage with these issues in a better way than we have historically done. Yeah, really good point. Um, And I think great question. So in, in the beginning of your um, question you were talking about like that that individual um, in comparison to the communal and one thing I would just invite us to consider is that there is no individual um, if you if you put together your belief system and I just said from a positive side name the five most influential people in your life you'd probably give me five pretty healthy or good influential people and then if I said but who really influenced you right like who did something that traumatized you wounded you or um discouraged you in such a way that you spent at least a season of your life trying to overcome those negative words that were said right my individual belief system comes from a community of good and bad ideas that have come from other people that have created what I believe is an individualized belief system so I think sometimes that's a, that's a framework that we get caught up in is like, I have my beliefs and we can agree to disagree. It's like, there is no, like I in this, like our systems came from the good things and the bad things and the voices 
that were there or weren't there that helped us formulate an idea that's coming out of my mouth toward another individual that also has their community that um, isn't the same as my community that then are saying something back. And so when we can start to remember that our, that we represent a mouthpiece from a group of people that raised us, encouraged us, were absent from us, neglected us, hurt us, empowered us, celebrated us. And then we can come into a room and then to your second point of, then we can create a safe place to engage our peers, our families, our spouses, our best friends in a safe place to say, okay, and what would your voice sound like based on all of the people that have been in your life? I think that's where we actually can get some work done. When we interviewed Justin Wolfenberg, one of the things that he talked about was that none of us come into the world as a blank slate. We are all a product of a multi-generational family story. Um, well, I think it's important to understand is we as humans are shaped by the story we live in, right? We're not independent, rational creatures. We're not like, oh, I have these beliefs. No, no, no. You were shaped by a story. This idea that we came to our conclusions and kind of became who we were objectively without regard to anything around us is kind of a crazy idea. It doesn't make any sense at all. So I, I think you're dead on with that idea that uh, even in the beginning, you talked about if we're going to make change, we have to change. And a big part of that change is really trying to sort out what are the stories that we have been handed by, the, by those most influential people in our lives, whether those are positive stories or negative stories or stories that maybe we would just say are neutral. They don't, you know have a, a goodness or a badness or a hurt or an encouragement to them. They're just the way that we see the world. What are those things that define the way that we see the world? Because those are the, those are the things that are defining how we are seeing all of this stuff that's playing out in 2020. Yeah. I think we've, we have so many personality tests and all those things out there too. I think that kind of plays to it of, right? Like you can, we've individualized our journey and our path on some level of like, Hey, where you're going to go take this test and it's going to show you who you are and your tendencies. And then you're going to show that to other people. And you can really own that either embrace that or try to change that versus the, the narrative approach to these things, like recognizing our lives as story and saying, asking questions like when was the first time that you felt that way? Uh, do you remember where you were and what was going on the first time that you witnessed or experienced this? Um, and being able to see that narrative play out, it actually changes our perspective drastically. Um, in, in my own narrative, my, my grandfather had a really hard time when my sister um, was going to be engaged and marry an African-American man. He had a really, really hard time. World War II vet, um, and I labeled all the things racist over my grandfather um, because he there was it was it was pretty traumatic in our house over just this this separation and there was a lot and I remember one day going to talk to my grandfather and asking him that question when was the first time that you felt like um, this about African American men and he had said some really unhealthy words about this entire population and he actually took me back to his childhood when he had to walk through 
a, a different neighborhood where he became a minority in order to get to school and how on that day he had been bullied as an elementary age boy. And so his like, it changed drastically for me of going, Oh wait, your perspective isn't just about, um, racism or systemic activities. It also has this trauma and victimization that you experienced as a young boy tied to it. And that's a different entry point for me um, within the conversation is that he had to overcome the trauma of being beaten up by some African-American teenagers on his way, on his walk to school when he was a young boy before he could deal with this systemic perspective that he had. But all anyone was doing to my grandfather was seeing the outward approach to the systemic part. And they were just labeling that. They're like, you like this, this, and they're looking at his age, what generation he's from, what type of language he had then used to protect himself. It wasn't until we got to the heart of the story to say, when was the first time that you felt that, that I could actually see a path toward reconciliation? Once he told that to Julius, my brother-in-law, like, it was game over. Like they were just best friends at that point. Like it was because Julius saw my grandfather in a different light and my grandfather saw Julius in a different light. And it was totally different once that narrative came out. But when we individualize our personalities or our backgrounds without, without being allowed to let the story come to play, we really shortchange each other. Like we are really selling each other short. I was listening to this teacher one time talk about worldview and really how do we have compassion for people that we perceive to be different than us. And he said a phrase that I've never forgotten. It was a long time ago and it has stuck with me. The phrase is, your world is not the world. And that phrase was so impactful to me because it it was the first time that I really took any time to consider that the way that I have experienced the world might be different than the way that the people around me have experienced the world. And like I said, that was the first step. But as I have gone on the, on that journey, I've really started to ponder, you know, like what would it be like if I were uh, maybe born into a different family or born into a different country under different socioeconomic circumstances. I mean, those things are really important. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the stories that have shaped us. The context in which we have lived our lives has deeply informed the way that we're interacting with the world. And that's that's great and fine. But what we have to understand is that our experience is different than other people's experience. And the only way that we can uh, begin to understand other people's experience is to, one, acknowledge that our world is not the world, that there is actually something much bigger than us happening around us. We're not the central character. And then also to listen, ask questions, and that is uh, part of where we're going in the next interview. I think we also have to remember that our experience is valid, and that is born out of our life context. But in the same way, 
somebody else's life experience born out of the context from which they come is also valid. And I think trying to make our perspective the only right perspective is part of the problem in this conversation. Mm. Yeah. All of us are broken. All of us have in many, many ways been uh, presented with a broken world. And uh, it has it has shaped us. And um, none of us have it all together. None of us can lay claim to, I know the absolute truth about everything. I understand this to a to a full extent, really in any way. And so um, I, I think just the acknowledgement that I am broken and the person that I disagree with is also broken. Um, it it kind of creates the right kind of atmosphere for dialogue and conversation because it's an acknowledgement that like, look, I'm coming to the table with humility and... Um, grace to you for for how you come to the table yeah i mean there's a i'm not japanese i don't know japanese but there's a word that i ran across um it's the word kintsugi and it is apparently a japanese method of repairing broken pottery with gold and so the idea there isn't that we broke a bowl let's throw it away if we're broken we need to mend our broken spaces and if we take in, you know, in, in, in our mind this idea of kintsugi or repairing those broken spots with gold, then when we come to the table, we're acknowledging the fact that we do have spaces in us that have been damaged. But because of a process of healing through that, we come out on the other side with um, you know, the remnants of that breakage, but it's something that makes us beautiful. And that experience of of suffering, of pain, of recognition of something that's broken in our lives um, can inform and even influence, you know, conversations about things that are challenging as we go forward. We're really excited that you took any time out of your day to tune in to listen to this conversation. It is not over. This was just part one of a several part series, and we really are going to explore some of this more in depth. We would love for you to come along on the journey. Uh, In the meantime, go out and live today in a way that will matter in 100 years. Shalom.